Hello. Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Acts 17, if you want to open the Bible. It's also in your blue slip, as the wording there. Let me read it out. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I, perce- I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind, and breath, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then like God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst. It is really good to be with you, uh, despite the fact that things haven't changed. Uh, It's a wonderful place to be and to see uh, what's happening around the traps and to see you gathered in a lecture theatre like this, to have the opportunity to hear what is the best news in all the world really is astounding. And I'm very thrilled to be able to share this with you uh, during this time. Now I've got to work out what I do with this. I'll just stick it in here somehow. Uh, And then what I'm going to do is also pray again ask God to help me to speak faithfully and well, given the gravity of what it is that we're exploring, and then God willing, will respond. So please join me in talking to our great God if you are the praying kind. If not, just listen carefully and we'll get together on what it is that God has said. Let's pray. We thank you, dear Father, for the privilege it is to gather here today to hear your voice in what you've cause to be written in what we know as scripture. And we pray that you'll give us open minds and hearts to respond in a manner 
that is pleasing, right and true to you. Now please help me to teach your word faithfully in so doing. And we pray this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. There is a Jewish American sociologist by the name of Philip Reef. Hands up if you've heard that name before. Just curious to know. Gosh, I can almost speak authoritatively (laughs) because I've looked up Wikipedia. (laughs) Something along those lines. Philip Reef has significantly contributed to our understanding of morality and culture. And he actually coined the phrases, wait for it, first, second and third worlds. Right. But it's not in the sense that you and I understand those terms, where the third world is a developing nation like Yemen and the first world is a nation like Australia because of our prosperity. Now, he doesn't mean it in that way. He means it in sociological terms as he understands it. And that is this, you see, they, they are types of cultures, as it were, and morality that society embodies in these worlds. And so the first world is one that actually appeals to various gods, uh, like the Greek gods of the first, well, I was going to say first century, but it is that. So, you know, like Zeus and Poseidon and Aphrodite and so on. So that's the first world. The second world is one that appeals to the Judeo-Christian God, as it were. And then the third world doesn't have any reference to any gods or anything transcendent, but actually has a reference to itself, as it were. That makes sense. First world, following various other, well, he would say pagan gods, but their morality is based around fate, as it were. That's what he would say. The second world, the Judeo-Christian world, well, that morality, culture, well, that functions by way of faith. And then he describes the third world as functioning, well, disembodied from any transcendence altogether and has a reference only to itself. Okay, first, second and third worlds. And here's the thing. All of them can exist in the same society. And that really is the case, I suspect, on this university campus. There are people who inhabit these so-called first, second and third worlds. And I wonder which world you think you inhabit. Now, my guess is that it's unlikely to be that so-called first world where you think it's just all fate, where there is nothing, even though you might think there's something transcendent. But most of you are, well, thinking that because this is a Bible study, that a number of you will believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again. But there may well be some of you here because you've been invited along and you don't actually have any reference to Jesus, but you thought you have an open enough mind to come along and your friend is just so nice that you just thought you'd come along anyway, something along those lines. Well, that's wonderful. And I'm so glad that you're here. But whichever world you inhabit, I want to suggest to you that God really matters. That's the subject of today, right? That God really matters. The historical setting of... The text that we looked at today is a place called Athens. Athens, of course, the city, is arguably the most glorious city by way of history in the world. The cradle of democracy. 
The best of ancient thinkers were there like Plato and Aristotle. It was still one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world pre-COVID. And where you can still see the evidence of the incredible architecture like the Acropolis, which is the hill upon which the Parthenon, the great temple of Athens, still has bits of structure for. It was the religious centre of the then known world. And the elite gathered there. And that's what we learn about the place in case you were listening carefully. You'll see there, in, if you come to, uh, that's uh, in, in, in here, the small number 16, and it is very small, verse 16, uh, have a look there. The number 16, or verse 16, as Christians understand those little numbers. While, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, please note a couple of things here. Firstly, Athens was a place that was full of idols, right? full of idols, wall-to-wall -wall idols, statues like today. Someone once said about Athens that it was easier to find a god there than a person there. In this sense, it would seem that many inhabited the so-called first world there with pagan deities tying their morality and culture to a sacred transcendent order of some kind beyond this material world, even though it was still based on fate, right? It was the kind of first world day or culture. But secondly, Athens was full of philosophers, did you note there? Elite thinkers of their day, if you think philosophers are elite thinkers. Perhaps the closest city to Athens today is something like an Oxford or a Cambridge. I should add in the University of New South Wales there, shouldn't I, just to flatter you for this moment in time. But it's, it's the elite thinkers and, and they share their ideas together in pubs and taverns. If you've ever been to Oxford or Cambridge, you'll know that it really is a city built around the university. And all the elite thinkers just gather in pubs and, and talk philosophy there, talk stories there, talk their latest ideas there. That's where the great C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien used to meet in pubs to discuss things. That's where they discussed Greek and the like. It was there that they gathered, right, in, in the marketplace. And, and it's, it's not unlike here. You'd be gathering in, in the refacts and uh, on market day. You're going around to stalls, but not just to become a member of the chocolate club or the medieval society or something like that, but, but to actually discuss real ideas to actually interrogate each other about each other's world views. That's what it was like at that time. And remember, philosophy literally means the love of wisdom, right? The love of wisdom. But in the first century, it was more nuanced. It was more like a whole world view, a whole world view that people made a living off and they would persuade you to join their world view, to join their particular philosophy in order to live life because that's how you actually live life according to the consistency of this worldview. That's why it was so important. That's why it wasn't just a chocolate club. It really was life itself. And amongst those philosophers, did you know, were Epicureans 
and Stoics. The Epicureans, well, they had a particular philosophy that said that this life is all there is. Random collection of atoms with no purpose. And even if there are gods, they have no effect on us. Their aim in life is to live for, wait for it, modest pleasure. Not, not outright pleasure, but modest pleasure. That was, that was seen to be the, the good thing, right? The, the moral thing, as it were. See, these were the third world thinkers of the first century. They, they had based their reference upon themselves and their philosophy rather than anything transcendent. But the Stoics, on the other hand, their big thing was to follow only reason and be detached from any emotions. That makes sense. Doesn't it? You're a Stoic. You've got a stiff upper lip of some kind. You take whatever comes. You don't get emotional about anything. Just roll with the flow of the universe. And above all, do not allow yourself to be controlled by a desire for pleasure. So in that sense, they were the actual uh, opponents of the Epicureans. But these were the first world thinkers of the first century because they often identified the universe with God or Zeus, even though they didn't think that they especially had anything to do with their morality. It was all about fate. Right? Those worlds existed in the first century in the same society, like it may here. So when the Epicureans and the Stoics, let alone other philosophers, heard this man named Paul speaking, they thought he was just another philosopher. But they thought he was rather inconsistent. They said, what does this babbler say? The word babbler is just like a, a bird picking seeds in terms of the original thinking, right? It, that's what it is. They just thought he's just got a bit of this philosophy, a bit of that philosophy, a bit of that philosophy. So he's really just some kind of mongrel philosopher in the end. They thought he was speaking about two divinities, two foreign gods, Jesus and another God called the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection, verse 18. Now, here's the thing. As odd as he sounded to their ears, they still wanted to know what he was teaching. Now, that's such a breath of fresh air, isn't it? Such a breath of fresh air. In fact, that ought to be the university setting. And it's just so sad when universities want to clamp down on other people teaching anything. That's not our history, right? Universities are meant to be the place where you can learn about anything, even if you disagree vehemently with their conclusions or their philosophy. At least they have a right to say it, as long as you relate to each other lovingly. And so I'm so glad that you're here if you are still checking things out. It's such a breath of fresh air, isn't it? And I hope you can lis listen carefully to what it is that we're saying so that you can think deeply together as to what it is that we know about God. My prayer is that we will do likewise as I share with you what we learn about this so-called unknown God, what might be unknown to you even if you do not believe in God as one from the so-called third world. An unknown God. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Small number 22 there. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, that's like the big marketplace, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to, an, to the unknown 
God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The Athenians were so concerned to represent all the gods of their day that they even erected a particular, well, it wasn't a statue, it was just a stand there, it says, to an unknown god. And so this man named Paul takes up the opportunity. Now, the unknown God, it's a bit like the tomb of the unknown soldier. You know that? It's meant to represent all the soldiers that they haven't identified. There's one of those in the war memorial, of course, in your nation's capital, right? An unknown soldier. Here is an unknown God. Now, what did Paul claim about this God that he wants to make known? Firstly, that God made everything. God made everything. Look at verse 24 now. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The assertion of the Bible is that there is a God who made everything. Every mountain, every molecule, every valley, every virus, every planet, every person. He made everything. As such, unlike the Epicurean philosophers, he believes that God made each atom and each virus and each person for a purpose. It's not as if the atoms revolve around with no purpose, as the Epicureans thought. No, there is purpose because they were made. When there is a maker, the maker makes something for a purpose. The maker does not make something without purpose. God is the one who designed everything we experience with our five senses for a purpose. And as such, God cannot be contained. If he is the creator, the maker of everything, then he can't be contained in any religious building. Right? He's not limited to cathedrals or mosques or temples or sports arenas. I don't know whether you've been inside a so-called sacred building. They often design an area of it and, and you come to it and it's so designed in such a way that you just immediately know from the architecture that you need to go quiet. You need to go real quiet and stop that phone. No, 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 no. That's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you. That's all right. No, no. But, but you, you start to go quiet in that sacred space. E even in the war memorial, right, there is this place and you go enter it and you kind of feel like, oh, I've got to go quiet. This is sacred. And you have that sense of these buildings. And so therefore people think that that's where God is contained. But no, it cannot be. You cannot contain God in a man-made structure. He's God. And furthermore, he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our worship as if that is going to sustain his ego. It's not as if he, he waits around and thinks, oh, I can't wait till we get to Sundays because then everybody's going to start singing to me. You know, but until then, I'm just bored. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for, him to, for people to fill my ego and nurture it at that time. No, he doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need us at all. In fact, he's the one who gives us everything in life, every breath that we take. So that breath, 
that breath, and that yawn. No, I'm just joking. I just came from God. Every heartbeat that we have comes from God. He made everything. But secondly, God determined everything. Have a look at verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 and 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, from the first human he created, he determined where we should even live throughout the world. And he did this in order that they might seek him from anywhere in the world. He is, after all, God who doesn't live in a particular place. And so he's not far from anyone, no matter where they are on the earth. And so we can seek him from anywhere in this planet, whether we're in Angola or Afghanistan or Armenia or Australia or Argentina or Antarctica, we can seek him. He's not just the God of some nations, therefore. He is the God of every nation. And if he's the God of every nation, here's one implication as an aside. Therefore, there is no place for racism, is there? If we can use this metaphorically, God is colorblind when it comes to race and ethnicity. There can't be any place. For, if he is the God of all the nations, that means he's not just the God of one nation. And there is no place to look down on people from other nationalities. Now, I'm speaking as someone who's ethnically Chinese, right? And the Chinese look down on everybody, right? <laughs> Because we are the superior race, after all. You know. But there is no place for that, is there? None. If God is the God of all nations and determine where we live. And likewise, he is the God of every person. Verse 28. Every person. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's the God of every person. Quoting an Athenian poet here who is consistent with the Bible, not because the Athenian poet has supreme authority. It's what he says is consistent with the ultimate authority, namely what God says in the Bible. We learn that we are all God's offspring. Now, a funny thing is that in the original word for offspring is the word from which we get genus. Does anybody know what genus means? Someone who's a science person, what does genus mean? Anybody? Willing to call out? So you do that calling out stuff here, don't you? I mean, you are one of those two universities. What's a smart person? A smart <laughs> genius. <laughs> are you one of those? <laughs> no, there's it's a paradox. Yeah, yeah. No, it's that's genius. With, but there's genus without the I, right? The a genus, maybe. The the original word's genos. 
genus, genus. In science, come on science people, what does genus mean? What's a genus? Anybody? Family, thank you. Yes, that, that, that kind of thing. That's right. You didn't do science, did you? <laughs> you did commerce and you did it at another university. I know that much too. But anyhow, genus, that's right. It's a family. It refers to a class of things that have the same characteristics, right? You know, in biology, you get that. It's that kind of um, same characteristics. So according to Wikipedia, <laughs> real authority, Species like zebras and horses are the same genus, right? The same family. They're the Ecus family, right? The Ecus genus. Uh, humans apparently only share the same genus with extinct forebears. So Homo, Homo sapien is what we humans are, but we only share the same genus with extinct species like Homo erectus, allegedly, or Homo neanderthals, allegedly. My first wife thought I had a Neanderthal jaw because it kind of sticks out, you know, too much. Or, but that's why we share the same genus. But not with, we, we don't say share the same family with apes and chimpanzees. That's according to this, right? Isn't that interesting? Even though we share 95% of our DNA with chimpanzees, don't worry, we share 50% of our DNA with bananas as well. <laughs> so, you know, go figure. Point here is, though, we are God's genus it says god's offspring every person is referred to as god's offspring this implies that our humanity has a god reference right unlike the third world where they only have a self-reference in terms of their morality in terms of their culture god is saying that we have a god reference we are of family likeness with god the other way that the Bible puts it is that we are made in his image. We are image bearers. We were made in the image of God where every human actually images him by ruling the world under his loving rule. We find our identity only in reference to God, not in reference to the animals, not in reference to anything else in creation but ultimately in reference to God. We can only understand what a human is if we understand who God is. That's how important it is. That's why God matters. But let me ask you this question. If we are God's genus, God's offspring, then what else does it teach us about God? Right? If we are God's offspring, then what else does that teach us about God? Now, I know you're used to answering questions like this, right? So what is the standard thing here? It's a 30-second thing, isn't it, from memory? Uh, so go for it. You've got 30 seconds, right? In my part of the world, you get more time than that. But you only get it 30 seconds because that's a culture here. Go for it. Speak to the person next to you. What do we learn about God if we are God's offspring? Go. I'm actually going to time you. Genuine 30 seconds. Let's come back together. I'd love to hear one or two answers. What else does it teach us about God if we are God's offspring? Anybody in this half of the room willing to shout out an answer? Nope. What about this side of the room? <laughs> Anybody? He's our father. He's our father. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else want to come back here? You did a lot of talking. Yeah. I guess you carry his characteristics of your father's family. 
yeah, you carry the characteristics of your father's family. Yeah, yeah. Now, those things are true, but what does the text say? Let's go on. Have a look at the next verse. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, here are the implications about God. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You see the implication that we learn from here. Now, I don't think those things are wrong, by the way. I just want to go with what the text is actually saying before us. What is he actually saying? If we are God's offspring, we ought not to think of him as an image of some kind. I think that's what he's saying. This is what we learn about God. If we are God's offspring, then it's ridiculous to think of him as the offspring of something else that is made. In other words, he can't be something that is made of gold or silver or stone or wood or any kind of art because we are his offspring. It's not the other way around. Right? We are his creatures. He's the creator. We are the made. He is the maker. So it doesn't make sense to worship a statue from any religion or a statue of Jesus even or a painting of Jesus. If he is the God of all the nations and the God who made us and the God who formed us as his offspring, then it makes no sense to relate to him through created things. See, that's why God matters. Not only we are his offspring, but we are his accountable offspring. He's accountable offspring. Look at verse 30. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Keep going, verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If God is God, if he made everything, including you and me, for a purpose, if he is the God of all the nations, if he is our maker, if he is our creator, then we cannot ignore him. We cannot ignore him. Who are we to think that we can ignore him as his offspring? It may be that we still live very moral lives, care about injustice, give money to charity, help our neighbour, but we can do all of this and ignore him as our God, but we cannot do that if he is who he is. You think, why not? Well, just imagine for a moment, and it may be your story, I'm not sure, if, if you are uh, a student here who has basically been able to study here purely because of your parents' generosity. Let me sharpen the image for you. Imagine if you're an international student and your parents have given up everything to enable you to study here, as was the case for my cousin, whose mother sold her house enabled for him to study here. But imagine if you were my cousin that you came here, you were able to do that and you did well. You did everything as your parents had desired. Not only did you get into the course that you wanted to get into, you, you, you topped it. Right? 
and you got a really good job and you found a spouse that your parents really liked and, and you prospered in life and you were very pleasing in terms of the expectations, except for one thing. You never communicated with them. You ignored them. Can you imagine that? Like it's bizarre to think, couldn't it? Even though they give you everything, you, you, you meet their expectations, as it were, but you don't communicate with them. You, you ignore them. So even though you satisfy the expectations, they don't hear you. They, they don't hear you talking to them. You're not Zooming them. You, you're not FaceTiming them. You, you're not indicating how things... How do you think God feels? Who's given us everything that we have, including our breath, our heartbeat, and we do everything that seems to be so morally right and true, but we ignore him. How do you think he feels? Rightly angry. And so he commands all people of every tribe, language, people, nation to turn back to him, to treat him as he deserves to be treated, as the God of the universe, to live for him as number one. He commands us to change our minds to stop living for ourselves, but to live for him. And he goes on to say that he has fixed a day. A day. 2,000 years ago, the true God of heaven and earth sent his son, Jesus, to take upon himself all the anger that we deserve. All the anger that should have been poured out on you and me was turned aside from us unto Jesus. In so doing, he died the death that you and I deserve. But here's the big point that Paul is making, though. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And now he is seated at the right hand of his father from where he will judge the living and the dead. If you were able to open this roof and look into heaven itself, you would see Jesus at the right hand of his Father now. And he will come. He has fixed a day when he will come to judge the living and the dead. You can praise him, disagree with him, quote him, disbelieve him, glorify him or vilify him. What you cannot do is ignore him. Because he has set a day that he will judge and he has shown this by raising this Jesus from the dead. So how will you respond? Well, how do they respond? In the text here, have a look at verse 32 towards the end. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some, some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You see, you can mock or sneer. And that's, I guess, to be expected. 
You might think these are ludicrous claims that do not make any sense to our 21st century third world ears, I'm going to put it that way. There is no transcendence. So I'm going to decide life for myself so that in the end, it is my individuality that's going to be transcendent in my life. But just ponder that for a moment. If that's how you live life, then you've got to deal with a whole stack of other gods as well. And when you disagree, how are you going to get on? Because who's going to be transcendent in your relationship? Or will you hear again? There's one guy named James Folder, who was the president of the Secular Society at the University of Melbourne. He writes, Christianity makes a very bold claim that all humans are eternally lost unless they surrender themselves to the redeeming power of Christ. As an atheist, I think this claim is false. But if this claim were true, I would very much want to be convinced of that fact, as would many of my fellow atheists. Indeed, I would go further than this. If Christians believe they have compelling reasons and evidence for their beliefs, I insist they share them with us. Let's sit down together, Christians and atheists, and politely but honestly share our best reasons in a spirit of good faith and friendship. Let us do this not occasionally but often. These issues are far too important to be neglected as a result of our tendency to separate ourselves. That's an atheist speaking, but isn't that a breath of fresh air? He was an Areopagite. Let's heed James's plea. Please come and talk to us. If you're still here unconvinced, then please come and talk to us. But it may be that you're at a point where you're ready to believe. Not just here, but now it's actually going to change. That is, you're willing to recognize that my life needs to change because of this belief. God really matters. It may be that you come now to this point after all this time of reading the Bible with someone, perhaps. Now you recognize that God is so relevant that I do need to turn back to him as my Lord and my Savior. And if that's you, can I encourage you to do business with God right now? I'm going to pray a prayer that you can pray with me. To actually come into relationship with God as your father and Jesus as your Lord. I'm going to read it out to you. It goes something like this. It says, Dear Father, thank you for creating and sustaining us. Please forgive me for ignoring you as God. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my rebellion and to rise as the judge of all. And please help me to live for him as my Lord and Savior from this day on. You hear the words of the prayer? If that's your prayer, please pray it with me. What I'm going to do is pray this prayer sentence by sentence and you echo it in your head and your heart to God in silence. And let me assure you, God will answer. Please pray with me if this is your prayer. Dear Father, thank you for creating and sustaining us. Please forgive me for ignoring you as God. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my rebellion and rise to be the judge of all.
And please help me to live for him as my Lord and Saviour from now on. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.